UNFTR. I have an MD from Harvard. I am board certified in cardiothoracic medicine and trauma surgery. I have been awarded citations from seven different medical boards in New England, and I am never, ever sick at sea. So I ask you, when someone goes into that chapel and they fall on their knees and they pray to God that their wife doesn't miscarry, or that their daughter doesn't bleed to death, or that their mother doesn't suffer acute neural trauma from post-operative shock, who do you think they're praying to? You ask me if I have a God complex? Let me tell you something. I am God. Listen to us talk, we're a world-renowned. Download our podcast. Where you will consume all the doom and gloom from 99 and Max. Many sound design always inspires to your heart's desire. Hey man, you know there's nothing that we lack. Past your ears into your mind, through the heart, all the facts. On your podcasting app comes a basic white man with a rusty microphone in his red right hand. Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by Unfucking Overcaffeinated members W. Jeremy D., Specker, Sam C., Ryan F., Rodrigo G., Rob Nasby, Prof G., Pete M., Nathan Surst, Nathan E., Michelle H., Matthew, and the memory of Nenny McGee. Welcome back, Unfuckers. I appreciate you all coming along for this journey into U.S. healthcare. We're going to rest the subject after this episode for a bit to leave some breathing room and let some of what we've covered marinate. This last installment of the Not Series that turned into a three-part series is a look at the hospital system specifically. The usual slew of caveats apply here as well. First, this won't be exhaustive. It will be a streamlined overview of the primary systems the majority of us encounter and the areas of the industry that drive revenue and costs. So we won't be looking at systems like the VA, urgent care centers, or tribal health centers, to name a few. Also, hospitals are complex institutions. They bring the majority of us into the world today. They typically play a role on the way out. The providers perform miracles on an almost daily basis, many of which were inconceivable even within our lifetimes. And then sometimes they don't. Naturally, the subject of hospitals is highly charged. So let me state up front that I believe in the people within these systems, as we all should. We may not be hanging out of our windows, banging pots in celebration of healthcare professionals every evening, but we should. Now, because this is a series and we've covered a lot of ground thus far, I think it's helpful to recap a bit. One of the things I've been trying to focus on lately is to emphasize key takeaways and talking points, especially in the bring it home max sections. Sometimes we cover so much ground that the important nuggets and facts that would be useful in conversation later get lost in the shuffle. So I'm making a deliberate effort to reinforce important points to help us all develop a shared language and understanding. You're not saying that you have trouble getting to the point, are you? 
No, not Max. No, it's very funny. Listen, I've acknowledged that brevity isn't my strong suit. So in that spirit, and to recalibrate, let's review some of what we've covered to place this final episode into its proper context. With that, here are the key takeaways from part one. The American concept of health coverage, which is distinct from care, but is essential to understanding access, was formulated as a fringe benefit rather than a natural right. Just the nomenclature alone gives us insight into how the system has evolved. The Inflation Reduction Act contains key provisions that alleviate the financial burden on seniors where prescription drugs are concerned, including Medicare having the ability to negotiate drug prices for specific drugs and a cap on out-of-pocket expenses for seniors in a couple years, which is stupid, but at least it's coming. Healthcare spending represents 20% of the nation's GDP, an astonishing number that illustrates the sheer size of the industry and therefore the challenge we face in reforming it. Prior to the New Deal, there were attempts to pursue a universal system of coverage, but this progressive concept took a backseat during World War II and subsequently due to a number of factors. For one, there was a growing stigma attached to all things socialized. The largest opposition at the time came from the AMA, as physicians were concerned that a government-run system of healthcare would negatively impact their ability to practice medicine freely. Labor unions also balked at a universal system because it would have eliminated one of their key competitive advantages and benefits. And new technologies were developing rapidly in collaboration with the private sector. The developing European model was centered around the patient. The burgeoning American model was centered around payments. Both theoretically contemplated access to care, but the very nature of the approach meant that as the industry grew, the incentives grew further and further apart. One of the ways in which the United States nurtured the payments-based model was the structural incentives that favored employer-based insurance. Both employee and employer contributions to coverage for care became tax-exempt in 1954, which spurred investment into insurance products, and we haven't looked back since. This resulted in a regressive system that pitted the haves versus the have-nots in medical care, and left millions of Americans uninsured or underinsured at the precise moment that advancements in medicine were booming and spending was increasing and driving the cost of care. The system that evolved over the years contributed to the widening gap in healthcare outcomes along ethnic, racial, and socioeconomic lines. The more advanced the solutions, the greater the cost. The greater the cost, the greater the pushback against reimbursements. The higher the premiums, the more tenuous the coverage, and so on and so on. And because nearly every stakeholder in the American system is ultimately incentivized by profits, the greater the push to increase costs, increase premiums, and deny coverage. It's a self-fulfilling cycle of profiteering designed to protect profits over patients. Remember that there are 2,000 pharmaceutical companies, 6,000 hospitals, 6,500 device manufacturers, and 1,000 insurance companies all vying for your healthcare dollar. The example we gave was that 12 of the bigger companies out of these more than 15,000 private companies posted $99 billion in profit in 2021 alone. That's 12 out of 15,000. Your sickness is big business. And because we have a system built around a for-profit network of companies, it means that shareholders are the ultimate beneficiaries of your illness. Furthermore, we return to another important talking point that is largely lost in the discussion, and that is who these shareholders are. 90% of equities in this country are owned by 10% of the population. So just a little extrapolation, and it's very clear who this system is designed to benefit. 
So that was part one. On to part two. Okay, well, in part two, we look more closely at the insurance industry. While Max listed out the endless number of sectors within healthcare from the list of SIC or Standard Industrial Classification Codes, we wanted to home in on the insurance industry as the known villain and major cost driver. Not because they necessarily take more profit off the table, but because they've negotiated a position where they can guarantee their profits. A key distinction. So as we drilled deeper into the insurance cabal, we highlighted a couple of key metrics to demonstrate the madness of a profit-based system with for-profit third-party insurers determining not only the cost of provided care, but what indeed can and will be covered. We put this against the backdrop of the greatest decline in U.S. mortality rates since the mid-1920s, all while spending double that of most other developed nations per capita. One of the most important elements of the Affordable Care Act, known as Obamacare, was the inclusion of a federal mandate. Essentially, this is the requirement that everyone has coverage. If you don't qualify for employer-based insurance or government programs such as Medicaid, Medicare, or VA coverage, you're required to sign up for insurance on the newly formed exchanges. If you fall within a certain income threshold, you might qualify for federal subsidies. If you're financially able to acquire coverage and choose not to, you'll be subject to a fine. The reason for this last provision relates to a concept economists call adverse selection. The theory is that young, healthy people have little incentive to go out of pocket for insurance, so the federal mandate instituted a penalty for opting out. Insurance requires numbers to spread the risk and make financial sense. Republicans were able to successfully counter this provision in the court of public opinion by positioning the mandate as an attack on personal freedoms and liberty. Thankfully, that was the only court the Democrats lost the battle in. Because in the court that really matters, the Roberts Supreme Court, legal challenges to the ACA were shot down because the federal mandate was treated as a tax. This turned a generation of conservative voters indoctrinated by Fox News into Roberts detractors, but it did save the ACA. Of course, we also reviewed the fact that the federal mandate was actually a Heritage Foundation invention that became the model for Romney care in Massachusetts. The original intent behind the federal mandate was to punish so-called freeloaders in the system that utilized emergency room care as primary care. The balance of Part 2 peaked under the hood of the legislative process to pass the ACA and how the settled law actually took us further away from the dream of Medicare for All. Even though the intent of the legislation was to develop an insurance-based system that provided universal coverage and contained costs by adding millions of healthy people into the system, the dream was never fully realized. That's not to say there weren't positive aspects in terms of coverage. Millions of Americans did take advantage of the public exchanges, and the number of uninsured Americans, and children in particular, dropped precipitously and continues to do so. And, of course, America still has the unique distinction of having a million Americans file for bankruptcy each year due to medical costs. And that includes a significant percentage of the insured population. In fact, only 9% of the nation is currently uninsured, which is historic. Unfortunately, 9% of the population equates to 26 million people, which, as we noted, is the size of Australia's population. Austria! <laughs> well then, <laughs> good day, mate. <laughs> Even more troubling to ACA advocates is the fact that costs weren't contained by any demonstrable means. In fact, healthcare costs continue to spiral out of control despite attempts by the Biden administration to curtail spending on prescription drugs in the Inflation Reduction Act. We rounded out part two with a discussion surrounding a couple of important thresholds. The first is the 60-vote filibuster-proof threshold in the Senate. From the outset of the drive to Obamacare, 
the Senate operated under the assumption that the ACA would be a pure legislative act and not necessarily a spending bill. This distinction led all those involved to believe that all 60 votes in the Senate, which included Bernie Sanders as an independent, the newly elected Al Franken, and Arlen Specter, who switched parties. What makes this so critical to understand is that every senator at the table was therefore essential. A single defection meant that it was over. And behind every senator involved was a special interest group or donor or even personal issue that showed up in the text. Common sense provisions that would have brought millions more under coverage, potentially reduced costs to consumers, and tightened controls over special interests all got watered down in the final bill. The other threshold was determining who would qualify for a subsidy on the open exchanges. It was originally set at 400% above the poverty level threshold, which brought a few million people into the fold. But when the CBO scored the entire package slightly less than neutral, meaning the ACA wouldn't deliver cost savings over a 10-year period, Democrats freaked the fuck out. One of the easiest pickups was to change the poverty threshold calculation from 400% to 300%, which cast aside millions of middle-class income earners. In the end, the ACA was passed as an omnibus spending bill, which meant that it only required a simple majority. So a handful of conservative Democrats wound up voting against it to maintain their conservative bona fides ahead of the midterm elections, and the bill passed anyway, which meant that all the giveaways to these fuckers didn't matter in the long run. And that is the wrap on parts one and two. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. UNFTR is also sponsored by our unfucking overcaffeinated members, Cringy, Jennifer S., G. Wookie of Ohio, Goat, Eric Wagner 101, David MJ, Corey S., Cindy S., Brian, Awesome A., Ahsoke, Alfie and Flash, and Asshole. Chapter 1. What's a hospital? Aside from a big building with patients in it? <laughs> Hospitals come in several shapes and forms, and these forms vary throughout the world. Columbia, for example, boasts more than 10,000 hospitals compared to 6,000 in the United States. For reference, Japan has more than 8,000, France, 3,000, Canada, 700, New Zealand, 150. Location, services, number of beds, population density, and other factors contribute to that total number. These numbers can fluctuate depending upon the data sources and some technical considerations. Inpatient versus outpatient or ambulatory care, emergency or urgent care services, addiction recovery, specialty practices with surgical capabilities and recovery units. I offer these distinctions because the United States tends to have far superior levels of specialty care in outpatient settings that might otherwise be tended to in a hospital setting elsewhere. So, where the U.S. is concerned, there are major differences among and between institutions considered part of that 6,000, which is our focus today. The vast majority of hospitals in the United States are acute care facilities, meaning they specialize in short-term care for certain diseases, surgeries, emergency services, and the like. Long-term facilities are usually reserved for chronic treatments like rehabilitation or psychiatric services. I mentioned in one of the prior episodes that we're going to carve out psychiatric care from these episodes because that journey is distinct in America and there are more political and sociological factors at play. Now, further distinctions include federal and state-run hospitals. 
The most visible within this category is probably the Veterans Administration, or the VA. But there are a handful of state and local-run hospitals and clinics, but these are few and far between. Now here's where it gets a little dense. Technically, any hospital that isn't run by a local, state, or federal government is considered to be a community hospital. But that term carries some baggage because it seems almost too parochial. A large for-profit hospital within a larger system would technically be considered a community hospital because it exists to serve the surrounding community. But we're more likely to associate a community hospital with like a physician-run rural facility. There are a couple more examples like teaching versus non-teaching hospitals, which just means that there's a medical school attached to it. Then there's the difference between a network and a system. This is a little more dicey, so here's a quick breakdown from the American Hospital Association. Quote, a system is defined as either a multi-hospital or a diversified single hospital system. A multi-hospital system is two or more hospitals owned, leased, sponsored, or contract managed by a central organization. Single, freestanding hospitals may be categorized as a system by bringing into membership three or more and at least 25% of their owned or leased non-hospital pre-acute or post-acute healthcare organizations. System affiliation does not preclude network participation, end quote. So do we really need to go all the way down this rabbit hole? Probably not, but I do think it's helpful to at least make these industry distinctions because there are probably a lot of professionals listening to this that know the difference as well. So for reference, altogether, these distinct organizations comprise the 6,000 or so hospitals. Now, we won't be covering the federal or psychiatric care facilities, nor will we parse the nuance of networks and systems or high growth areas of independent urgent care and outpatient facilities. What we will be talking about is the difference between profit and nonprofit hospitals. Now, despite the implication of the nonprofit name, believe me, it's all about the bottom line. He's asleep. I almost feel guilty about charging for the anesthesia. <laughs> almost. Running out our sponsors for today, this episode is brought to you by Unfucking Pro at DK on the Rocks. Chapter 2 Profit and Nonprofit Hospitals Two Sides of the Same Damn Coin. In developing from places of dreaded impurity and exiled human wreckage into awesome citadels of science and bureaucratic order, they acquired a new moral identity as well as new purposes and patients of higher status. The hospital is perhaps distinctive among social organizations in having first been built primarily for the poor and only later entered in significant numbers and an entirely different state of mind by the more respectable classes." End quote. That's another passage from The Social Transformation of American Medicine, which we've relied on a bunch thus far. What it conveys is the remarkable evolution of the hospital from social dumping ground to elite ivory towers of medicine. For most of history, if you were ill, the hospital was the last place you wanted to end up. It's another important reminder as we continue that the field of medicine, the advancements in diagnostics and treatments, is nothing short of miraculous. The sheer amount of knowledge accumulated since World War II is unprecedented in human history. And perhaps that makes this series, and all things healthcare in this country, even more frustrating. These achievements should be glorified and lauded, shared and available, accessible and affordable. 
Instead, the very best of it remains out of reach for the vast majority of the public here in America. Now, when we talk about villains, we usually think about insurance companies and big pharma, and we've done enough unpacking of insurance to concur with this assessment. Dr. Harris. Yes? Do you concur? Concur with what, sir? But remember that big pharma, as fucked up as it is, accounts for only 10% of the healthcare spending. Of course, that's still big, and the revenue and profit picture is tremendous. But hospitals account for 30%, and over the past two decades, their costs, or should I say revenue, has increased dramatically. And why not? The bigger they are, the more leverage they have on payments. They also have a new pool of paying customers through Obamacare that might have previously sought free emergency care. That increased revenue stream incentivized massive consolidation, and there are no laws on the books to restrain hospital system growth or prevent near monopolies in geographic regions. Well, actually, curiously, there are actually laws in certain states that prohibit hospital expansion, presumably to prevent hospitals from crowding out ancillary services and providers. And this used to be a much bigger deal. But hospitals have skirted most of these rules by pursuing mergers and consolidating either in a network or a system, as we discussed. And mergers like this aren't cheap. They might achieve efficiencies over time, but the initial stages of mergers and acquisitions are expensive. Another distinction that I don't want to spend too much time on is the physician-owned hospital. These are pretty rare and interesting as there are only about 240 of them left in the United States. The government makes these facilities jump through hoops when it comes to expansion because there's this belief that physicians have an embedded conflict of interest. Therefore, they're required to seek an exemption should they want to expand. Now, I bring this up because I find it fascinating that regulators believe physicians have a greater conflict of interest than nearly every other provider, supplier, insurer, and manufacturer in the healthcare industry. While some degree of conflict certainly exists, I do find it amusing that doctors are placed at the top of this list. Anyway, that gets us into the arena of profit versus nonprofit. To be clear, the vast majority of hospitals in the United States are technically nonprofit institutions, somewhere in the neighborhood of 75%, but it differs from state to state. So a nonprofit by charter means that they're exempt from an array of local, state, and federal taxes and must perform or donate a percent of their services to the surrounding community. Certain rural states like Alabama and Alaska have mostly government-run facilities, but for the most part, nonprofits are the biggest players in the country. And one of the key figures during the ACA negotiations was Senator Chuck Grassley, who routinely brought up issues with respect to the nonprofit designation. As Brill writes in America's Bitter Pill, quote, Grassley had long been focused on accountability and transparency among nonprofit institutions, particularly hospitals, that enjoyed tax exemptions from the IRS. He often cited a study demonstrating that the tax-exempt hospitals provided charitable care representing less than 5% of their fast-rising revenues, which was barely higher, if at all, than the for-profit hospitals provided. End quote. So to be clear, I am not a fan of Grassley, but he makes an important point. Coming out of the ACA negotiations, there was a sense that profit-driven companies were unjustly rewarded with millions of new customers with little downside, and rightfully so. 
But again, the focus was mostly on insurance companies and big pharma, as well as a litany of suppliers and manufacturers for those who were really paying attention. But it seemed like hospitals were able to deflect most of the criticism because of how they're perceived in the communities. Being a nonprofit gives them a certain level of cover because after all, they're not driven by shareholders and profits. They employ a ton of people and sponsor fun things like little league teams. Who can hate a hospital? But the reality is much different. An NPR feature highlights the issue with the perception versus the reality of cost drivers and the role that hospitals play. Quote, between 2007 and 2014, hospital prices grew 42%. The irony is most hospitals are, quote, nonprofit, a status that makes them tax exempt. Many, but not all, do enough charity work to justify the tax benefits, yet it's clear nonprofit hospitals are very profitable. They funnel much of the profits into cushy salaries, shiny equipment, new buildings, and of course, lobbying. In 2018, hospitals and nursing homes spent over $100 million on lobbying activities, and they spent about $30 million on campaign contributions. Health industries have also been funneling hefty sums into dark money groups, but their political power isn't just the result of lobbying or electioneering. Hospitals are often the biggest employers in states and cities across America, end quote. Again, I want to draw a key distinction between hospitals and physicians, because there's a tendency to paint them with the same brush. As Brill writes, quote, Doctors, whose incomes had never increased during the recent decades of the healthcare boom, the way earnings for hospital administrators, drug executives, or CT scan equipment salesmen had, were assumed to be the prime drivers of costs, and they would, therefore, have to pay for driving them too high, end quote. Physicians are in many ways caught between a rock, a hard place, and potential lawsuits. A doctor's livelihood, particularly general practitioners, faces death by a thousand cuts. And we'll talk more about that later. The point is to distinguish between the people working in the hospital and the people running it, and to understand the nature of the incentives behind the two categories. The absurdly complex equation that determines physician reimbursement and compensation is a muddle of forms, schedules, checkboxes, and malpractice concerns that would deter most of us from even entering the field. So let's go back inside the nonprofit world for a minute. Danielle Ofri from the NYU Grossman School of Medicine wrote an op-ed in the New York Times on the eve of the pandemic about the friction within the industry regarding nonprofit hospitals. In it, she perfectly encapsulated the issue of charitable designations and what qualifies as a community benefit, things that hospitals are theoretically required to do to maintain their tax-exempt status. She began with the change in the tax code in 1969 that made charitable care optional and left hospitals to decide how to pay back that debt to the community. Here's Ofri. Quote, an analysis by Politico found that since the full Affordable Care Act coverage expansion, which brought millions more paying customers into the field, revenue in the top seven nonprofit hospitals increased by 15%, while charity care, the most tangible aspect of community benefit, decreased by 35%. Communities are often conflicted about the nonprofit hospitals in their midst. Many of these institutions are enormous employers, sometimes the largest employer in town. But the economic benefits do not always trickle down to the immediate neighborhoods. It's not unusual to see a stark contrast between these gleaming campuses and the disadvantaged neighborhoods that surround them." End quote. 
This reminds me of our discussion surrounding funding for sports stadiums that promise to bring droves of customers to a destination and revitalize communities, only to discover that the fans come in, spend their money in the stadium, and then leave. That's right, and these complexes often pass through the very same neighborhoods that Ofri highlights. Another capitalist feature of the nonprofit hospital that will be familiar to unfuckers is exactly who has benefited the most from expansion and growth. Again, as Ofri writes, quote, from 2005 to 2015, average chief executive compensation in nonprofit hospitals increased by 93%. Over that same period, pediatricians saw a 15% salary increase. Nurses got 3%, end quote. Again, these are necessary places brimming with hope and ideas, technology and innovation, dedicated practitioners helping others, and yes, earning a healthy buck. Hey, you got something against making a buck, you commie? Not at all. But we're reminded that these were the very same practitioners who lobbied against a universal system of care or coverage, fearing that it would ultimately impact their autonomy. Well, they got their wish. Instead of answering to the government, the medical community is subservient to a corporate class of administrators and executives from all sides looking to profit from their expertise. And the temple on high that directs the flow of information, money, and policy is the hospital. So I want to finish up this chapter by once again giving it to Paul Starr, who captures the essence of the tension, conflict, and bureaucracy that exists in this temple of care. Quote, within the hospital, there continue to be three separate centers of authority, trustees, physicians, and administrators, posing a great puzzle to students of formal organizations. Sociologists have wanted to know why the hospital departs from the standard model of a bureaucracy in lacking a single, clear line of hierarchical authority. Economists have wanted to know what the hospital maximizes if it does not maximize profit. From the viewpoint of each discipline's paradigm, the hospital has been an anomaly. It seems much less so historically. Hospitals began as caretaking charities under the sponsorship of wealthy patrons. Their reconstitution as centers of active medical treatment made private practitioners anxious to gain access to their precincts. The practitioners were able to gain access in America because of the financial needs of voluntary hospitals that could not adequately draw on taxes as a source of revenue. The interest of private practitioners, together with those of different ethnic and religious groups, led to the multiplication of relatively small hospitals and blocked their integration under the state. In turn, the absence of integrated management led to more competition among hospitals, more emphasis on business functions, and more administration, all of which left, instead of a single governing power, three centers of authority held together in loose alliance. Hospitals remained incompletely integrated both as organizations and as a system of organizations, a case of blocked institutional development. A pre-capitalist institution radically changed in its functions and moral identity, but only partially transformed in its organizational structure. End quote. Chapter 3. Turning Doctors into Business People That's not a good sign, and... Uh your body temperature's below 80 and your, 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 your heart stopped beating. One of our core unfuckers, Dr. Hub from Massachusetts, shared a prescient New England Journal of Medicine editorial from 1987, 
by Arnold Relman. In it, Relman writes, quote, healthcare is becoming a business. Pressures from insurers and third-party payers for containment of costs, the growing presence of investor-owned healthcare corporations, and competition for market share among our overbuilt and underused hospitals are transforming the U.S. healthcare system into an industry. Even many of the supposedly not-for-profit voluntary hospitals have begun to behave like profit-oriented businesses, end quote. This sentiment is echoed by general practitioners all over the country who have seen their peers in other nations increase their incomes relative to their own. Practitioners who've had to scratch and claw for fair reimbursements, hire internal billing coordinators and reimbursement specialists, outsource IT functions to keep up with insurance billing codes and requirements, and so on. Now, in contrast to this experience, specialists in medicine have seen their incomes soar in the past few decades. Specialists earn, on average, about a third more than GPs with fewer administrative headaches to contend with on a daily basis. As a result of the pinch on GPs, they're forced to see more and more patients to keep level, each visit accompanied by a dizzying array of billing codes that are just the beginning of a fight for reimbursement. And in highly populated areas, maintaining privileges at prestigious community hospitals is essential to one's status. A physician's hospital affiliation, which insurance they take and efficiency scores given by insurance companies are tantamount to this physician's status as well. Nowhere, nowhere in this equation is there anything about the quality and thoroughness of care. Now, I don't want you to worry. In medical school, I was taught by a friendly band of lesbians who taught me how to do an adequate and politically correct pelvic examination. Again, star, quote, a regime of medical austerity will test the limits of professional autonomy in the corporate system. One reason that there will be a loss of autonomy is that the organizations in which physicians work are themselves likely to become heteronymous. That is, the locus of control will be outside the immediate organization. Professional autonomy has been protected by the institutional autonomy of hospitals. In the multi-hospital systems, centralized planning, Budgeting and personnel decisions will deprive physicians of much of the influence they are accustomed to exercise over institutional policy, end quote. Relman summarized the conflict between physicians and their hospital masters by warning against what he called the businessification of healthcare. He warned that what was once a social contract between physician and hospital would necessarily morph into a business arrangement where implicit contracts are replaced by explicit ones, collegiality gives way to policies and procedures, and enforcement of behavior would be favored over collaboration in service of patient well-being. Further, as Starr reflects, quote, physicians no longer have as complete control of knowledge as they formerly did. The informational asymmetries that some analysts long identified with the legitimate foundations of professional power and privilege have declined. With electronic record systems and software-generated metrics of performance, the managers of hospitals, health plans, and other organizations have better information to track what doctors and other healthcare workers do. The means of organizational control have improved." End quote. So Dr. Hub's input didn't end with just words of wisdom from Arnold Brellman. He also referenced a New England Journal of Medicine article by renowned author and physician Dr. Mark Vonnegut in 2007, who opined on the nature of medicine. 
Quote, the big prize will come from creating a multitude of grading systems that rate doctors against one another, making them increasingly dependent on quality improvement goals and payments, while distracting them from patient care and making reimbursement more complicated than ever. Overhead will go through the roof. My practice already needs a full-time nurse and a receptionist dedicated exclusively to quality improvement initiatives. The incentives for getting rid of sick and poor patients will be stronger than ever, end quote. You know, if I did some sit-ups in the morning or bent over like this, I'd probably feel 100% Moon River. Chapter 4. Bring it home, Max. There's so much meat on the bones of this topic. Gross. Sorry. There's so much to unpack in healthcare. And we've only just begun to scratch the surface in three meaty, or chalk-filled episodes. The important takeaway for me when researching more about the role of the hospital is just how cold and institutional things have become. These are characteristics of industry writ large. Megacorporations where the bottom line becomes the top priority. The biggest single takeaway, which isn't news, is that healthcare is simply one of those things that should not be privatized and driven by profit incentives. And that's not to say profitable enterprises cannot exist within the structure. Healthcare workers, save for specialists in the U.S., make more in other OECD nations. There are profitable pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies, suppliers, and medical device manufacturers in other nations as well. It's just that the relationship is flipped. In other countries, the patient's interest is what fuels these industries. Here, it's very much the other way around. But again, if you're able to sustain high insurance payments relative to your income, you can avail yourself of some of the greatest care in the world here in the United States. This system is truly built for the top 10%, with the bottom 90% left in a precarious state of financial and personal well-being. And nothing laid bare this precarious nature of America's health system and preparedness more than our performance during the pandemic. I know we love being first, but Jesus... We were first by a mile in all negative indicators. It should be said, however, that despite our massive failure as evidenced by mortality rates, we can't judge the healthcare system and its capabilities independent of our policies. Nevertheless, the data are pretty bad. The World Health Organization has been parsing the most reliable data and has been tracking mortality rates globally since 2005. Now, there are gaps, especially in Africa, Southeast Asia, and Western Pacific regions, but there is enough historical data to benchmark against when it comes to the most reliable indicator of the devastation that COVID brought to the planet, and that is excess mortality. Experts knew throughout the course of the pandemic, and I'm by no means suggesting that it's over, that attributing mortality rates directly or indirectly to COVID would be tricky and political. The U.S. wasn't the only country trying to save face or have experts, politicians, and the public fight amongst themselves. But we now have a much clearer picture of what transpired. It's estimated that 14.9 million deaths globally over a two-year period are attributable to COVID if you simply examine deaths over the average. In the United States... The CDC reported 1.1 million excess deaths from the norm from March of 2020 through March of 2022. That's the benchmark that was submitted to the WHO. In many ways, other areas 
caught up to the United States as the crisis wore on, and 2021 was twice as deadly as 2020 globally. India's figures, for example, are the most controversial, as it still claims to have lost about 600,000 citizens, despite the WHO calculating their excess mortality at almost 4.5 million. But our numbers here in the U.S. are tight because our reporting processes are actually robust. So taking the WHO data at face value means that the U.S. has 4.5% of the world's population, but reported 13.5% of COVID-related deaths. These excess mortality numbers are our final report card, America. The results are in. We allowed a profit-driven system to be manipulated by politics, and we killed more than a million Americans. So where does change come from? How does it start? At one-fifth of our nation's economic activity, it's difficult to imagine how this gets better. 26 million uninsured, and that's a record low as a percentage of the population. Tens of millions more underinsured. A million bankruptcies a year due to medical costs. Declining mortality because of a mishandled pandemic, one that we drew up the blueprint for to handle, but didn't follow. Health outcomes that are no longer comparable to OECD member nations that pay half of what we do per capita on health care. To answer the question of how this changes, it should be evident that change cannot come from private industry or the political class. As Nelson Lichtenstein observes in his book State of the Union, quote, In Canada and in most of Europe, where systems of universal health insurance were funded out of general tax revenue, labor fought its healthcare battles at the ballot box and in the parliamentary committee chamber, thus reserving its picket line clout for wage and workplace issues closer to the immediate interests of its working members, end quote. Look, there's only one Bernie Sanders in the Senate. There are only a handful of Ocasio-Cortezes, Omars, Blumenauers, and Porters in Congress. We simply don't have the numbers in government to make meaningful change. When Obama was presented with a mandate from the people and had the numbers on his side to push through reform, it gave the false impression that he had the ability to pursue true universal coverage, but that was never even discussed. We recently covered the student debt crisis in great detail, but we didn't touch on the overwhelming costs of medical school. Sure, there are certain programs that allow for free medical training. There are teaching hospitals that will forgive debt over time, if you practice in their system. There's another term for that, indentured servitude. It's just another sign of madness and unique to us once again that we would encumber doctors and nurses in this country with such extraordinary debt that they become immediately beholden to the system and the cycle of billable hours and billing codes. I can think of no more appropriate name for a form that runs the entire cost system in this country than the charge master. Medicare for all is considered a given for seniors, but extending it to 55 causes too much harm to insurance companies? Well, you got Joe Lieberman to thank for that. Extending it to all suddenly becomes socialism? Exactly one half of the Senate is 65 or older. Can they not see the artificial madness of this cutoff date? In the absence of true reform, 
we will continue on a path of half measures and backroom deals with private companies whose interests are ahead of the patient and physician. In private industry, revenue must always go up. Always. So if the entire system is scaffolded by private companies that demand more every year, the cost inputs to the system will always increase, thereby necessitating more subsidies, more deficits, or both. And these can come from either the government or the population. Now, right now, the Biden administration is splitting the difference and offering some relief, but costs and increases are inevitable. And this tenuous partnership with the current administration is only as good as its grip on power. Every episode we do is an adventure, an exploration, a puzzle. This one might be the most frustrating because the answer is right in front of us and yet so out of reach. I know we all want easy solutions and straightforward answers, so here you go. The answer is Medicare for all. A combination of perhaps the French and German systems. A system entirely funded through taxation that brings everyone under coverage still allows for the existence of private insurance for premium care and electives, pays healthcare workers extremely well, and controls cost inputs. And the only way to achieve this is by passing the For the People Act to get money out of politics. That's the most straightforward answer I will ever give you. Medicare for all is attainable if we eliminate the power of the special interests and give labor the ability to organize freely. So in the absence of this miracle, we're back to half measures. And on this, take heart, because there are a few that make sense. First, fully subsidize medical school. If that's too hard, then how about debt at federal funds rates and full forgiveness after five or ten years in practice? Make pharmaceutical advertising illegal. Now, we didn't get too far into this, but we have a very big problem here, and I'll save that for another day. Medicare at 60. Fight to bring the age down with the argument that the government fucked up the pandemic and reduced our mortality rates for the first time since 1926. And we still don't know the long-term effects of long-haul COVID. This is a just fight that would bring millions more into full coverage. Expand the subsidy range calculation to bring more lower-middle-income households into the fold on the exchanges. Create a panel to evaluate the nonprofit status of the 5,000 or more hospitals that claim tax-exempt status and make this a higher bar. Hospitals should be required to participate at a minimum in pilot programs that fund local municipalities. It should no longer be enough to just put your logo on the back of a youth softball league jersey and sponsor a local concert series at the town bandshell. Robbing communities of badly needed tax dollars contributes to a reduction in local services and education, both of which contribute to negative health outcomes. This same panel should evaluate what qualifies as healthcare spending so the big insurance companies can stop fucking with the system and adhere to the 80% rule. But what do I know? Tell you what, I'll give the final word to Dr. Mark Vonnegut, who actually sent this in directly to us. Quote, Patients pay for everything, including the many attempts to fix healthcare delivery, all of which have failed miserably. 
50 years of trying have produced exactly zero instances which costs have been controlled or quality improved. Every innovation, the HMO model itself, QI, which is quality improvement, copays, deductibles, open and closed panels, LOS, length of stay, diagnosis-related group, preferred provider organization, withholds, enhanced reimbursement, electronic medical records, and on and on do exactly what not covering pre-existing conditions did. Under-treating those who need care and over-treating those who don't. Each and every one of these innovations hurts public and individual health, increasing the cost of insurance. It's like a pyramid scheme or protection racket. We actually know how to make medical care better and less expensive. To deal with COVID, we dropped co-payments and deductibles, improving the quality of care and public health while saving patients and their families hundreds of millions of dollars. While it's relatively easy to attack socialism, big government, and liberals in general, it's much harder to argue for co-payments and that it's okay to hurt patients. It's easy to show how these innovations have and continue to do harm, something we promised to not do. We can also, if necessary, use pilot programs and robust data to support the fact that eliminating co-payments lowers costs and increases quality. We can then apply the same logic and math to deductibles, PPOs, and the rest of the alphabet soup. 50 plus percent of a hospital's unnecessary care and overhead is directly attributable to insurance and other profit-driven mandates. We've lost 40 plus percent of our hospitals and 85% of our community doctors. Most innovations in healthcare delivery were made part of healthcare without legislation and can therefore be unmade part of care the same way as was done to respond to COVID. There are instances where co-payments or QI, etc., etc., improves anyone's care or lowers anyone's costs. A great deal of the mess we find ourselves in is attributed to the silence, cowardice, and short-term greed of doctors in general. With a little education and prodding, it's not impossible that they can grow half the balls demonstrated by nurses when they strike for better care and better staffing, rather than a bigger slice of the profit pie. End quote. The top 10% of the nation can afford the very best health care in the world. For the rest, it's a scramble and a pressure. We've designed a system built around a network of for-profit corporations that benefit whether health outcomes improve or deteriorate. And remember, 90% of those companies are owned by the same 10%. The power is in the hands of labor and the working class. Stop protecting premiums over patients. They made this a class issue. So let them deal with the consequences when the working class rises up against them. Here endeth the lesson. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Welcome into Post Show Musings, sitting here with 99 in the studio a full day and a half, maybe two days later than we should have and normally do. I apologize for the delay in putting this out, but I think it was worth the wait. What do you think, 99? Yeah, I mean, I think it's always better to wait if 
we have more quality content to include because the goal of the show is not just to pump out shit. It's to <laughs> pump out good shit. Good shit. That's, yeah. Yeah. So. Like good trouble. Sure. Yeah. And one of the things that that set me back a little bit was working in the words of Dr. Vonnegut, which I have to tell you, set me back a little bit. I was, uh, <laughs> was kind of like, oh, that Mark Vonnegut. So he's written a number of books. We actually have one of them in one that came out in 2022. And we have that in book love. He's been a, a huge advocate for transformation within the industry. And it's funny because when I started corresponding with Dr. Hub, he had mentioned Relman and mentioned Vonnegut. So that was all true. So that was all part of the script. And then they must have a relationship because he passed it along, he passed it along to him. So getting an email from Mark Vonnegut was just, it, it blew my mind. But then I started reading through it and then I started reading some of his other papers. And again, this is somebody who is in the system and has been looking at this stuff from a physician's perspective basically saying what most physicians I know say, which is just for the love of God, let me practice medicine. I don't have the time to be up on everything, to be up on new standards. And one of the big things that we didn't get into was the barrage of information, bad information from the web that the physicians actually have to deal with when patients come in. So they're like, we have to set aside more time to talk to people because like the first 45 minutes of a discussion is going to be disabusing them of their self-diagnosis from WebMD. And then we can kind of get to the medical care. Yeah, that's a tricky one though, because oftentimes, you know, especially with people of color, their experiences aren't taken seriously. Women in general have a tougher time getting people to take their diagnoses seriously, especially when it comes to like, you know, like reproductive health. So Yes, if you have a headache, don't Google, like, my head hurts and, you know, my nose feels weird, so I have cancer. Like, that's obviously bad. But I do think doing some self-research is okay to be informed. Yeah, and Brill actually starts his book in sort of a similar vein. So he, he is always, his job as a writer has been to be critical. He covers the healthcare space. And he's the one that really brought Charge Masters to the forefront and, and made it, like, a really big deal because he got a hold of them and he started looking at the prices attached to them. And he was like, whoa, 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 this is out of control. Published, a, uh, I think, a, a ton of articles about it. And then he went to the doctor who was feeling, you know, not feeling great, went to the doctor and got the very best care imaginable. And he, and he dedicates the, the whole forward of his book to say, there's no way I'm writing this book if it wasn't for all the things that I've been criticizing as a journalist over the last 10 years. Because the diagnostic care available to me as somebody that could afford it was so good that they found something they never would have found in any other circumstance. And then does talk about the difference in the socioeconomic difference of the people that can avail themselves of that level of diagnostic care. And that is such a big part of it. But the, the book then goes on to reinforce the idea that we don't have access to primary care physicians like we used to to have the kind of routine preventive care that we should and that they like to practice because they're losing that relationship. There are fewer of them, which means in the communities that you're talking about, we simply don't even have the numbers. And they're being inundated with so many non-practicing issues that they have to contend with that they, they're not dedicating the proper amount of time to do the things that you're talking about, but also to kind of disabuse people of the things that they come in with. And it just becomes this bizarre cycle. So fewer general practitioners, fewer hospitals, 
more sick people diagnosing themselves with weird things and then trying to navigate through a system where nobody knows if they're actually going to get paid or covered at the end of it. It's yeah. fucking crazy. I do think if I feel like that does tie back into like an insurance thing, though, because people feel like they only have, you know, the one covered appointment per year if they have some type of insurance, so your, your checkup. And then they have to get everything, you know, like, oh, I have this weird spot on my leg and then I have this and they have that. And so if people, if we had lower co-pays or no co-pays or more access to like office hours or I do think telehealth has actually been pretty like a good iteration in the field just based on, you know, what happened during peak pandemic because people feel more, I don't know, like maybe they have more access or they're more affordable out of network like solutions you can just find a doctor in your area and talk to them so i feel like that was more beneficial in the mental health space than it was in in and and i i can only i'm only saying this anecdotally from talking to physicians and in, in doing this process that we're expressing their frustrations with having to do this on a video call and just saying it's just not the same i can't feel your glands i can't do the things i was trained to do i can't there's a lot behind the I'm looking in your eyes, but I'm also kind of reading you as a person and I'm seeing your body language. And there, I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. And every a, a lot of what I kept taking away from from doing the series is that we're trying to make something that is still we'll make, predominantly we'll great again, <laughs> trying to make America something. We're trying to make something that is still predominantly an art into exclusively a science. And I think there's a lot of danger to that, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then yet again, it's maddening that with respect to the science part of this thing, we have the very best science available to us. Like how doctors, you know, physicians will come from Europe or from Canada or from South America and they'll be like, wait, you have how many MRIs in a five mile radius? It is, no, I mean, no, nobody has this, has what we have available to us. But then we also just make it impossible to access. Yeah. You shouldn't have to go bankrupt to get a fucking MRI. This doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I do want to say just before I know I'm going I'm going back a little bit to your telehealth thing. I think it was helpful in more ways than just mental health. I feel like maybe the perspective like your perspective on it might be from older doctor perspective and I'm taking it from like younger people and younger doctors because if you think that you have strep Yes, you should obviously go in the doctor. Unless we come up with a science where they can send at-home culture kits, which might happen eventually. But if you're like, hey, this is just how I'm feeling. You're my GP. I don't know where to go. Is this an ENT issue? Is this a gastro issue? You know, And then you just have this chat with them where you didn't need to be there. You didn't need to pay for the visit if there's like a telehealth rate or whatever. So I just do think there, I think there are benefits. And there's benefits to, to all of it. And, and that to me comes under the field of technology. It also mm-hmm. comes in the field of bandwidth and access and, and even being able to actually have that. And I'm not just talking about from the patient population, I'm talking about from the physician population as well. Yeah. Because there were plenty of older practitioners. Yes. If you think about like, it takes a long time to become a physician and then it takes a long time to learn some things and be in the, so if you want a physician who's in the industry for 10, 20 years, even that person isn't necessarily the most technologically capable person. And that person has some people in their office that are helping them get there. You know oh, I, I mean? know. My, <laughs> my roommate works with hospital technology. She works with EMRs, like the electronic medical records. Mm-hmm. And so she's like training these doctors. And it's sometimes as simple as like, 
okay so you click the carrot and that will take the drop down window and you can you can click that and it's it's really walking i mean they've never been taught before but mm-hmm. yeah my 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 gp who i've had multiple telehealth calls with throughout 2020 and now she you know learned how to facetime yes she holds the phone two inches from her face but we have a facetime call and and not for nothing that's out of compliance oh yeah yeah I, that I'm, I'm yeah. sure of, but I'm not reporting her. It's easier for no, me. No, absolutely. And, and that's that's part of the frustration is like there's other. So that's. Leave my doctor alone. When you talk about technology, her. there's like electronic medical records is another big issue where the Obama administration, again, punted on that when they enforced it by not requiring a particular standard because they wanted the quote market to figure it out, which means there was a rush of literally thousands of entrepreneurs in the tech space coming up with ideas for EMR and then nothing talked. And the irony of that was, I remember we did a piece a long time ago on how electronic medical records, the idea of it was founded by the Veterans Administration and has been around since the 1980s. And it was a very, very cool story about a group of rogue physicians in the VA that had the very first computers that it ever existed, and they started tracking patient data. Couldn't have been that rogue then. <laughs> they were rogue. They weren't on the run. When I, I think of rogue is like they were. Uh, would the, the no, first they were. computer they had a giant box on wheels. They they had them in their houses because they weren't allowed to store them at the facilities. Okay. They would take home patient information, and they would enter it into these rogue computer networks at oh, their wow. houses to track them because. They knew that veterans were a very, especially the because so you think about the timing of this, you're talking about uh, veterans that are coming out of Vietnam War and Korean War, right? Yeah, real And fuck. incredibly, we did not care for them. We did not tend to their PTSD or their or any of their- Yeah, we were mean to them when they got back. <laughs> we were mean to them. They had mental health issues and they had all sorts of rare cancers that had never been seen before. There was no playbook for this this particular group of veterans. And the VA would not- let them computerize the records for privacy issues. Understandable, right? So there's bureaucracy at work. Mm-hmm. So this rogue group of doctors, because they had a transient population, this veteran who used to be in Rochester suddenly you know, lost his or her home and they went down to Miami, right? They were seeking warmth and comfort. They had a family member crashing on the couch and then they wound up on the streets in Miami. That person pops up again in the system, no history, you have no idea what this person went through. So this group of doctors created the very first template for electronic medical records and would share this with other providers who would send out a notification to say, so-and-so just showed up on my doorstep, wow. don't know anything about him. They started to put the computers into the VA because they were like, this is game changing because specifically for our population and it's a closed network. We've got their military records. Now we have their health records. If we can just pair this with their housing data, we're gonna be able to provide continuity of care for these people no matter where they go. So the first thing the Clinton administration did when they took over the VA, they threw out the computers and destroyed the records. Thanks, Bill. (laughs) It was an amazing story. I should actually revisit that. And And that was, again, there's so... And fuckers, when I tell you there's, I don't know, scores of episodes on the cutting room floor that we could follow down with respect oh, to healthcare. Yeah. Unlimited. I mean, even if we wanted to talk EMR today, there is sort of like, not a monopoly, but there are the, the big players that we see now. And not necessarily the best technology. Oh my God, they're horrible looking. Yes. The yes. software my roommate uses 
It's disgusting. It yes. looks like if you booted up uh, like a Windows 98. Yeah, as people that have to work with UX and UI, like when you get a look at it, it it, it, it makes you yeah it makes you want yeah to it's really bad and ugly and whatever. But yeah, I mean even like I'm sure if you've gotten COVID tests and you download the MyChart app for CVS and it's in there, it's pretty ugly, pretty hard to use. <laughs> And then, you know, there's just so many, there's also just disparate systems. Like, yes. like we're in New York, so like the NYU, they have their own system. And it doesn't necessarily link to like the city MD system. So I have like eight health portals, you know, with whatever records here, whatever records here. And, you know, you can't always find a specialist in network, but also in your network of hospitals and whatever. Yeah. So the idea was to protect privacy. Right now, it's my data is just bastardized. Exactly, it's and now how everywhere. many places is your data? Yeah. It's it's CDMD is my fucking handprint or whatever. <laughs> it's, you know, yeah. it's like uh, <laughs> they're probably taking my butt print too. And they started out as private and then got bought out and then got bought out again. And there's private equity Summit players Health, involved. I think it's, it's my allergist. Way way too many people with their hands in that data that have access to it. So now the data is is way more vulnerable than it ever would have been oh, yeah. under a universal protocol that they could have locked down. And it's, it's just it's a mess. It is a mess. And our most it's our most sensitive data. Clearly. Yes. They have your social. They have everything there. Yes. All someone would need to do is just like swipe a medical record. And mm-hmm. <laughs> truly they got it all. Yep. Sorry, that was a downer. <laughs> no, not this whole thing is a downer. One thing I would like to uh, hear in terms of feedback, because unfuckers are always very responsive, is we can't tackle everything. This is not a health podcast. So obviously I stayed as close to the lane that involved uh, socioeconomic issues as I possibly could. The one area that I want to explore is mental health, because as we talked about before, that helps us draw in the history of healthcare. For which I got to tell you, the the Star book, the Social Transformation of Medicine, does an even a vastly better job with mental health care in this country. It's an incredible resource. Yeah. It's just like a this thing is like a like a like a Bible. It's incredible. So we've got that aspect that I want to talk about because it's a reflection of how our society developed, then how politics gets involved. And how economics gets involved, and obviously the and, Reagan era. Yeah, we can. Yep. just I can't wait. Yeah, what we did we during the Reagan era. Yeah, you we gotta shut it more. Like we have to draw. We can draw a in, in an episode like that a very straight line from people complaining today about the number of homeless encampments in cities across the country. We could draw a very straight line right back to the Reagan administration decisions to de- basically defund all psychiatric care again. What makes this such a great and muddy, uh, you know, volatile issue is that psychiatric care up until that point was also a disaster in this country. So we've never done it right, but we should be talking still about that. Right. We still no, we still, and I'm not sure that anybody does. That's again another area that we need to explore. But my guess is that if you have rankings of of happiness and yeah, stability, like and how probably rates that qualify death by suicide or depression or the amount of drugs that are prescribed in other countries. Again, it all gets dicey and I doubt that we're going to have parallels as clean as we did with like the WHO data on excess mortality, right? Yeah. I mean, every statistic you have is going to be, it's not absolute. You know, there are no absolute statistics that can't serve every person. And that's not to say that the data are subjective. Like there are objective differences in how we prescribe care and philosophy of care and treating uh, mental health issues 
and treating physical issues, obviously, but then there's also the externalities of the environment or, you know, access to food, access to clean water, access to employment, the level of employment, what the stress is like in a work life. We could look at places like Japan where there is less of a theoretical work-life balance, right? But then they have better health outcomes and longevity than we do. Why is that? So what is the state of mental health there? What are they doing to support mental health? Because they clearly don't have a work environment that supports mental health. Why do the Scandinavian populations have such uh, great work-life balances and maybe superior mental health outcomes? I don't know. They're beautiful. Because they're beautiful, they're tall, and eugenics, of course. I mean, right? Is that master race? Is that what you're suggesting? Uh, no, I wasn't. I just... Master race adjacent? I just... I just don't know what you're getting at here. Um, uh, uh, uh... <laughs> Uh, anyway, I love this stuff because it's because it is dirty and it's messy. There are so many clear things and policies and, and prescriptions that we can point to that would improve things dramatically, and yet not everything will apply a hundred percent of the time. So it, it's good stuff to unpack. Other than mental health in the United States, maybe as we're just exploring here, maybe something on electronic medical records and and the industry of something built around our data which mm -hmm. I think gets into, that might cross a boundary of uh, an episode that we have planned on surveillance capitalism. So that might all kind of work together. I think you teased that like eight months ago. You were like, we might have an episode on surveillance capitalism. Oh, no, we are. Then, Absolutely. But it didn't come out. It was one of no, your- it hasn't. This weekend. We're doing, oh, one of like I soon? Think, I think so. That's oh, because I got excited. I had books and a notes. And... We, we could do, I was thinking about the mental health would be a great way to collaborate with Newsbeat and do something about- how our prisons are basically the biggest mental health providers. That's right. So that might be a yes. cool avenue. It's like a side road. Yeah, I like that. So like almost like a mini episode about that. Okay, so think about that on fuckers. Think about the the, the different tributaries from here that makes so, sense so that much. you think that we that we're built to do a good job and questions that you might have that we can unfuck because yeah. we'd love to keep going down this road. And also, I mean, like I said, also, I mean, women's care in general, I think is could be its own episode. Because all the models of health were on men till like what the sixties. They didn't like do studies on women's bodies, so they didn't know anything about anatomy. And there are still men who think that like periods and pee come out of the same place. Hold the phone. They don't. <laughs> yeah, but like it's it, women's health, women's reproductive rights, and just women's reproduction. Like I was alluding to before. I mean. People with PCOS or endometriosis, they just don't get diagnosed. They'll just be like, you're faking it. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to hurt. Yeah, you have cramps. Get over it. Like, it's just so fucked. And obviously, like I said, women of color, you know, suffer more. But yeah, I'd like to, I'd like personally that we take a little trip down that lane. Yeah, there's, a, I mean. For all my lady unfuckers out there. Right. Or my, or my, what's the gender? fuckers? Yeah. I we guess do I don't want to be more... exclusionary, yeah. Femme presenting, but that doesn't mean all my unfuckers with uteruses. Okay. You fuckers. I feel like I've been here before. I'm having severe deja vu. I feel like I suggested ute fucker at some point for something else. That I don't recall. Yurt fuckers. People who love yurts. Okay. You can do book love now. So for book love. <laughs> We went back into the archives and pulled out State of the Union by Nelson Lichtenstein. Of course, we have Social Transformation of American Medicine, an absolutely powerful revelatory book for me. 
by Paul Starr. We've got The Heart of Caring. That is the most recent release from Dr. Mark Vonnegut and America's Bitter Pill by Stephen Brill. There were a lot of resources. We've got them all linked in show notes and on the Substack as well. And as always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by sound design maestro, Manny Faces. Who are you? I'm Manny Faces with the power to change from man to robot to monster. Oh, no. In specially marked packages, Manny Faces comes with five extra weapons. The show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99. Side effects may include diarrhea, constipation, and abnormal erections. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. I wonder if anybody enjoyed our new drop today. I certainly did. Our show is hosted by pre-existing conditions and distributed by declining mortality rates. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to unftrpod at gmail.com. Unfuckers know the rest of this bullshit. Here's the bottom line. Go to unftr.com and you'll find a link to our Substack, a link to buy our coffee, a link to our bookshop so you can get uh, all the books that we find the sources on, a link to get our native roasted coffee, to take out uh, memberships, to read our essays, all the things, all the things are at unftr.com because the great and powerful 99 deigned it to be so. Catch you later, unfuckers.